Good morning. It's half past seven and this is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Hayward and with me this morning is Emma Hurd, horticulturist and landscape architect, and Greg Boulderston, horticulturalist and worker at Forest Glade. Good morning, Emma. Good morning, Virginia. Thanks for having me. And good morning, Greg. Morning, Virginia. The streets were very quiet coming in, weren't they? Yes. I was about 15 minutes faster this morning than I usually would have been. Uh, Yeah, so I got here, didn't get much sleep last night and got here about uh, 20 minutes early and thought about all the wasted time uh, in transit and laying awake that I could have been sleeping. (laughs) It just uh, makes you realise that we spend so much of our time getting to places Yes, and they were talking on the radio yesterday about one of the reasons that Melbourne has been hit so much harder than Sydney is that people in Melbourne travel all over the city, whereas in Melbourne, Mm. I mean in Sydney, like when they had that outbreak in the northern beaches, I mean that's like a little island. Those people don't leave that area very much. Regional accents almost there. And London's (laughs) like that. In London you tend to, you know, you stick to the bit you're in and the city, you Mm. know, north, east. Oh, that's interesting. South, east, west. And um, and that's one of the reasons. And, of course, this is one of the reasons the city was considered so livable. Yes. Because yeah, yeah. people could travel around it so easily. But and it for the virus too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense for the sort of work that I do too. When I'm doing garden maintenance, I've got clients all over town, so I definitely get around. Yes. And, of course, you live in Olinda, so it's a way to go. Yeah. See, all three of us live out of town. Mm. No, well, fortunately, though, I uh, don't need to travel into town very often. It's usually only when I'm on here that I come to Melbourne, pretty much. So, um, yeah, mo- most of the uh, most of my jobs, uh, fortunately, are only about 20 minutes drive away. Um, most of them up on Mount Macedon. And, uh, How difficult to have to yeah, drive up and tough. down the mountain. It's pretty tough. <laughs> Um, and I've even got my own almost personal road that no one else seems to use. It's an old bush track, and I always go up there f- every, pretty much every morning. It's just a little. I've driven from your break. place up, sort of up over the mountain, mm. and that was very, very quiet. Yes, yeah, yeah. So there's a little dirt track that takes another couple of k's off it, and no one uses it. <laughs> Excellent. So, so that's my favourite road. And of course, Emma, some of your work has involved the botanic gardens. Yeah, I was very fortunate to help work on the arid garden and the sensory garden um, in late 2019. And then, so I worked on the design documentation and then it was built, both those gardens were built in 2020 and now they're open to the public. So very exciting to see them being used by people. It's, It's such a rewarding thing to see people using spaces that were drawings. I have to say that it doesn't surprise me with the arid garden mm. because it's very dramatic with all its cacti and it's very designed. Yes. But the sensory garden, which isn't as designed and is much frothier, mm. has been so well received. I'm yeah. continually astounded as when I walk through and people are sitting there and talking and kids are running around it. and yeah. It's been incredible. I, I really can't say to pe- our listeners enough do go and have a look at the two new parts of the botanic gardens it's and one of the wonderful things about the botanic gardens it does keep developing and redeveloping itself yes and it's such a credit to the team the entire team at the botanic gardens andrew and all the horticulturalists and andrea who we also worked with they they have such incredible foresight for the future of the garden and to think about 
what uses are in the fact that our climate is changing and to really make sure that the plants are the right plants for what we're going to be dealing with in, in 10, 20, even 50 years' time. And also, like, the planting design is heavily done by Andrew, and he goes on to site and he, he spaces them all out, he, he thinks about the textures and the colours, and it's just it's such a fantastic thing that he works with the horticultural team and they work together so seamlessly. And it is... You can come across landscape architects that don't have a horticultural bone in their body. Mm, And I do think that's a problem with landscape architecture, that people seem to be able to be trained and not know one plant from another. Yeah, and that's what's so fantastic is that um, myself, Andrew and Andrea Proctor, who all worked on the project as the design team, were all horticulturalists and landscape architects. And it makes a huge difference. Yeah, I think so. And and I know the gardeners are very involved as well because Terry was doing a lot of that and she was talking to me about the problems she was having with the soil that yes. it holds water and it's difficult there I mean you know the, the depth of their planning and thinking about mm. how to make it work is just yeah. quite impressive and the stakes were quite high for the arid garden because it was a beautiful collection that was donated to the garden so none of the team wanted any of those plants to be sacrificed to trial and error. It was very much a case of we have to design a soil profile that suits these plants and make sure that they transition well. Yes, it's, I've just been... Um, lockdown I find wonderful. Last lockdown I put in a rock garden. This, rock, this lockdown I'm taking down trees. It makes me focus, you know, because I'm not at the Botanic Gardens. I'm not doing plant trust. Mm. I am in here and still having to do this, but, you know, nothing else. And so I'm just in my garden mm. and I've been chopping down trees. I chopped down a lemon tree. It was so hard to do. But then Craig from Gentiana did say, you have got another 15 or 16, Virginia. <laughs> oh, you, I'm yeah. sure you've got a lot of friends, but not that many. <laughs> oh, I thought you meant physically hard to do, but emotionally hard emotionally, to let go no. of the tree. Yeah. Physically impossible. This yeah. is a chainsaw. Yeah. And then I've got a very large winter flowering buddleia on the driveway, which I've chopped down before and painted with Roundup and it came back. So I've <laughs> chopped it down again and painted it with Roundup and hoping it's not going to eat it. I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to be roundup free in my garden. But some things are impossible. Yeah, I'm learning. I'm learning that the sycamores yes. <laughs> are not are not um, going with the flow of my no pesticides. And didn't I see an ash in your garden? Yeah. Yes. Well, that'll be the same. If you don't give it a bit of pesticide, it'll never go. Yeah. Some, and I'm, some I'm, things like a good coppice, don't they? The, the sycamores mm, and yeah. ashes and. And they, <laughs> yeah, they have really deep like J roots, yeah. and if you don't get the very bottom of that root, it'll be back. Yes. Mm. Well, I took a sycamore out when I moved in 16 years ago, and it still pops up yeah. miles away from where I took it out. Yeah. Mm. Could be a seedling too. They, that's the, probably the worst thing about them is the, the seeds drift quite away and, yeah. and easy to pop up. That's the problem um, that we have. At the bottom of our block, we've got a huge one that seeds every year. So. Yeah, yeah. Is it on your block? It is, and then there's another one on our neighbour's block, so we need to discuss, yeah, deal with both of them. So, so they're actually sycamores, as horrible as they are, they're quite a useful tree in a paddock situation. So they're a good windrow tree because they're fairly tough. And there's 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 a naturalised one up at Mount Macedon that's got this 
deeper green leaf and a burgundy underside. Oh, nice. And it goes the most amazing yellows and oranges in autumn. Mm, they are actually quite a it, beautiful tree. It's a tree. really pretty form of it. Well, they are a maple. And, mm. Yeah, yeah. And it, so if you stick them in a, a hedgerow in a paddock where there's cattle or, or sheep or something grazing either side of it, there's not really anywhere they can go because the, the seed can only drift so far on the wind. Mm. Um, so there's safe ways to use them, but... Yeah, if you stick them anywhere near a cool climate rainforest, then you're in trouble. Well, because <laughs> they, they will pop up in the bush. They pop up in London. They popped up in all the bomb sites. Yeah. Mm. You know, that is the sort of tree they are. They yeah. pop up where there's been damage, mm. and they popped up in all the bomb sites. Yeah. yeah. And some of them are still there, and yeah. huge. Yes. And yeah. sending their, you know, their helicopter seeds. Yeah. Out the cockroach of the plant world. Yeah. <laughs> no, the one they've got is what do they call it? Japanese. They've got this other thing in the cemeteries in London, which is it will grow up under concrete. Oh, Japanese wow. knotweed. Okay. If you want to see a really foul plant, mm. look up Japanese knotweed. Oh, wow. It is appalling, unbelievably hard to get rid of, mm. although sycamores are hard to get rid of. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you mm. say, once, if you can pull them out as first-year seedlings, they're not so bad, but yeah. once they've been in there for a couple of years, yeah, you've, got um, a problem. You've, you've sort of got to dig them out, or as, as you say, they're going to reshoot from the base. Yeah. And, uh, and as so, if you coppice a sycamore and don't kill it the first time, then you're never going to get, dig it out. Mm. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's pretty much poison after that. Yeah, so, so when you're digging it out, try and dig it out properly the first time, or else you're going to... Um, Live yeah, with it. Yeah, yeah or, or have to use some, some uh, herbicide, yeah. Well, I've been taking other things. I've, I've got two lovely um, elders the, with the burgundy leaf, and they're a bit too big, so I've cut them, you know, I've coppiced them, and they're on either side of a dogwood. And the, the, the three, there's, there's three where there should be two. And, of course, my really big problem is the dogwood's the one that should go, given climate change. Mm. But... We've had so much rain, it's looking absolutely beautiful. What sort of dogwood is it? It's one of the American ones that struggles every time it's hot. Yeah, okay. It's not... I've got Norman Haddon as well. Right. And that survives the heat quite well. But well, at least when it dries out, they won't get the um, fungal disease that Floridas tend to have on their leaves these days. Yes, <laughs> I haven't had you any haven't had disease much, on mine, yeah. no. They get, they get little brown spots on, on a lot of the Floridas. Um, it's a little fungal infection I think they get. Oh, look. They're susceptible to. Mm. That, I cannot that's why bring it's always a good idea if you're going to buy a flowering dogwood to get one of the um, Causa chinensis sort of hybrid ones. I think mm. they've even hybridised them with the Floridas, I think, too now. So they're less susceptible or, or um, uh, immune to, the, to this fungal infection. So, But the, the old Floridas, I think... Um, tend to get a little bit spotty-leafed, and if they get it bad... So if you've got it in an open spot, I think, where there's airflow, it's probably not so bad. It's not that open because there's so many trees around it. Like, I bought a small magnolia and put it in maybe six years ago, and it's already 20 foot. So (laughs) I think the small bit on the label was probably a touch incorrect. Yes. Yes. It's you know, always like the, was it Grand Flora little gem? Yes, And little people buy it thinking it's going, going to be, be about a metre tall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's only it's little compared the to the Grand Flora, <laughs> which is, you know, 80 foot high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's, and of course my garden is now 16 years old, so the fact that I've planted, and I don't mind that I planted too many trees because 
for the last mm. 15 years or 14 years, they've been looking wonderful, but they do now need to be thinned. Mm. I, I think it's better to overplant. I reckon it's... Yes. You're, it's better, you're better off 20 years down the track going, oh, I think I'd better take out that tree, yes. rather than 20 years down the track going, I wish I had planted a tree there 20 years ago. Especially <laughs> in your personal garden. Yeah, Because, yeah, you know, yeah. you're looking after it. Yeah. You can... You can you know, chop and change if you want. And most of those trees come wintertime. You can transplant them if you really find that they're in the wrong place. Yeah, you've got, you've got a good sort of five or ten years after planting where it's pretty safe to, to transplant something. Mm. Do um, either of you know Justicia ad hoc data? Blank. No. <laughs> I think so. I've got one that I need to transplant. And being a Justicia, it doesn't, it doesn't go dormant. And it's Big. I mm. mean, it's it's a bush. It's not a tree. But I'm going to try and transplant it. That's going to be interesting. Mm. And, Greg, the ixia, you gave me some of the wild ixia, you know, the really, really, really blue-green one. So that, that's a viridiflora? The, oh, the it's so beautiful. The species viridiflora, yeah. And it's, uh, the reason I'm moving the justicia is because those ixias are now under it. So, so you think it would be easy to move the bulbs then? <laughs> <laughs> if they're doing well there, though, because the, the, the species Viridiflora is actually a lot more it's quite tricky, tricky to grow. So the, the, the hybridised one, which is a bit of a, lighter, a slightly lighter blue with a less dark centre, so it's got a lighter centre and it's a, more of a sky blue rather than yes. a duck egg blue. Yes. Um, well, they're the, quite weedy and easy to grow. And, the Viridiflora, I wouldn't move. call it duckhead blue. It's 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 an aqua that is it's just a, it's, it's it's a strange colour, isn't it? Well, it's it's a, it's a trippy colour. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. so strong it's for so a strong, plant. Yeah, and and I don't, I'm not sure how closely you've looked at it, but the black centre yeah, isn't the, actually black. It's no, like, it's a deep, it's like deep, ink deep blue. Yeah, inky you, blue, like a that sort of oily, inky sort of colour where it where it reflects. It is the, well. See, yeah. I haven't known if I move them, will they object? Because um, they should be in the sun, shouldn't they? They they, sh- they should be in the sun while they're growing. Yes. So so if they're in the shade in summer, that doesn't matter as long as they're dry. Mm. Um, hmm. But they just need good airflow and sunlight in winter when they're growing and and into spring, I guess. Yeah. Um, but they they are. If I was in your position, I'd probably shift the tree too because yes. I have I've had trouble growing Viridiflora. And keeping a nice, healthy colony of it because it gets some sort of fungal thing as well occasionally, and it gets little rusty spots all over the flowers and leaves. And, and I've, I never, I've never seen it anywhere except with you. I mean, it's not commonly found. So um, I'm worried. Tonkins have it. Tonkins, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yep. So I, th- I think um, Jane Jane has it and, and grows it. And Let me just say to everybody that is Jane Tonkin, who was in here maybe three or four weeks ago from Tonkin Bulbs, who and, are. And She'd be much better to ask how to get, keep, give them a good habitat because she grows them really well and, cons- and sells she, them. Yeah. She is an extraordinary grower. You yeah. name it, she grows it. She, I must take you there, Emma. It's the most wonderful place. It's yeah. from your place. You go straight down the mountain and you're just in thick forest. Wow. And there is one property in that forest, which if you don't know where to go, you'd never find. And, that's, and, and I, I don't know how many acres... She she survives on um, solar or generator and, and power. Generator. She yeah. has no no electricity. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty incredible. Yes, yes. Given that she's she can only be an hour's drive from Melbourne. Yeah. But um, it's the most amazing place, and the family have been there for 
I think, since the First World War. Yeah. So, and Tonkin bulbs, if you're interested, look it up online because they do have lots of very rare plants. Mm. It's probably one of the best places to get rare bulbs from, like a, a really good selection. It's really good quality stuff, well grown. And, um, yeah, there's, there's a few other places that might sell some interesting stuff. But not like not like Jane Scott. It's she's got rare stuff that <laughs> the collectors are. Well, I love going there because I see things and I don't know what they are, and that yeah. always excites me. Yeah. Aren't we lucky to have such wonderful growers in Victoria? Well, you've got Craig just round the corner, yeah. and Craig. I mean, he propagates nearly all his own stuff, so therefore. Yeah. You get unusual things there that you and don't see elsewhere. Yeah, because That's Craig yeah. and Gentiana in Olinda. Yeah, because he has such access to beautiful plants in the hills, you know, and he, he can he has the, the skills to propagate them. And the other thing about Craig is he's also he asks you where you come from mm. and if you I mean he'll I'll say, Oh, I think I'll take that. And he said, no, <laughs> that won't grow you. in Seville. Yeah. You know you've got a he good knows. nurseryman if they tell you no. Yes. Yeah. If they say no to you about something, you, you go back. Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent, because they're not, they're not trying to just sell you something yeah, yeah. for the sake of it. Yeah. They care about the plant yeah. as well. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very good sign of a, of a good nurseryman, I think, if they, if they say no to something. Yeah. This is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Hayward, and you're listening to Emma Hurd and Greg Boulderston. And um, maybe we should uh, put through the phone numbers and right. see if anyone wants, wants to, to call to in. <laughs> we have two numbers. Our, our phone line is 94190155. And if you'd like to send us a text, we're on 0488809855. The talkback number, 94190155. The text number, 0488. 809-855. I see you brought some plants in, Greg. I did. Um, I, I was just going to say, too, that uh, with the, you were saying before about enjoying the sort of lockdown out where you are, and I noticed, too, in the last weeks, as Forest Glade's been shut as well, and it's how nice it is to work in the garden without... 300 people walking past <laughs> um, just for a change obviously not for too long because you know that's how the garden sort of survives and and pays for itself um, or helps pay for itself uh, but yeah just just the other day we there was a large urn in the garden that uh, had been it, it was placed up so th- this is like a eight nine ten foot tall urn uh, I think it's made out of plaster or some sort of light cement or something, um, very expensive one. And about 10 years ago, they'd built a base for it, and you could see that they'd made layers of concrete, so they'd mix up one and put it into formwork and mm. built this thing about uh, a metre tall, I guess, or just under a metre tall. And one of the layers they'd forgotten to put cement in. Oh, no. So I'm looking at this thing a couple of weeks ago, and it's like, I'm pretty sure that wasn't leaning like that the other week. And I've looked at the base, and it's all split through the base, and it's just about to topple over. And this thing, like, it comes in three sections, and each one weighs about 100 kilos or so oh, easily. Heavens. And uh, it's teetering, you know, looks looking like it's going to fall over. So we removed it off the off the bottom, and I've just built this stone uh, plinth at the base of it to, to put it back on 
and to be able to, I, I had to, I had these big blue stone pitchers and had to split some off them to to get them to fit together correctly, and to be able to swing a Spalding hammer onto a blue stone and send chips flying everywhere without having worrying <laughs> about. Uh, it, it was good timing, I guess, for that particular yes. job because it was right in the middle of the garden. And you couldn't do it. If uh, well, it, it would have been tougher, yeah. Mm. yeah. It would have been You'd a lot tougher. you probably have to cordon off the whole area. Something like or... that, yeah, because the, the bluestone, when you hit uh, hit bluestone with a hammer at, at great speed, it's, uh, there's little bits of stone that flick off in all directions. Um, so, yeah, it was nice to be able to just not have to think about if, if there's anyone close by and just swing the, the, the hammer to crack this big rock open. And that's a fun lockdown project too, a bit, yeah. you know, uh, not something you do every day. No, no, there's, there's uh, as I say, my, most of the stonework's just dry stone uh, steps and things like that up there occasionally and, and there's not too much uh, chipping away at the rock. It's just sort of build with what you've got. But um, mm. this one had to be you know, 730 millimetres square each way. Yeah. And to get a big bluestone blocks to fit together so the seams weren't, you know, mm. four inches wide or something was, uh, I thought, I'm going to have to crack these a little bit. So that was one one good thing about, yeah, the, the, the lockdown was having the garden closed. Well, so I could it is extraordinary when you've got something that has, was designed and... In doing the design, they make a mistake or they don't think about the maintenance. Like, I've got an underground tank, and the foot valve in the tank has just gone manky and mm. it's not working, so the pump's overworking, blah. It took my neighbour, who's a builder, his apprentice and his offsider, and two from the football team to open the tank because it's got this incredibly heavy lead yeah yeah you know and it's it's miles away from where the pump goes so so then the apprentice had to put on fishing gear <laughs> you know one of those <laughs> suits up to, your, yep. up to your way up to your chest and get down and get in to be able to get out the foot valve i mean it, it, it's appalling mm. thought for maintenance yeah yeah design design's good when you think about it <laughs> yes yeah and you need to think about the maintenance yeah, not yeah. just you know because yep. Eventually, everything needs maintenance, yeah. and I'm going to replace that lid. But when I replace it, I'm going to have to get five. I'm going to have to get the local football team in to yep. get the lid off again. You know. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll have to get a nice photo of your urn to put on the 3CR Instagram. Yeah, I, th- I think I, I t- it's, the urn's not on there. When, when I finished at Forest Glade on Thursday night, I do two days a week there, mm-hmm. and the last thing I did was brush the wet cement off and clean all the rocks off. Yeah. So it wasn't quite ready for the urn. I, I think uh, tomorrow morning they might put the base back on and maybe when I get back Wednesday we'll we'll put it all together. And um, how many did it take you to get the urn off? Uh, three. 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 Mm-hmm. It was com- comfortable with three, but getting it up is going to be... So it's in three parts. There's the, the base, which is relatively light and squarish and easy to manoeuvre. Um, the urn, which is top-heavy. Mm. And we'll by the time the base goes up onto the plinth that I've built, and then the urn goes on top of that, it's almost at chest level to get the urn up there, which again makes weighs about really 100, 100 something kilos. Mm. And then the last piece is the lid, which is it, it's not my taste of urn really, to be honest. It's 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 got grapes and things, so it looks at the top of the urn looks like it's got grapes and and leaves and fruit coming out the top and um, kind of baroque or yeah something like that and <laughs> but the cocoa. problem is it, it's 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 almost um it's not really plaster but it's it's like a it's like a form of plaster it's been hand carved out oh. of this sort of heavy plaster material 
Um, so the lid weighs nearly as much as the urn. Oh, that, no. That has to go up on top of the urn, which uh-huh. is at that stage about maybe two and a half metres off the ground. Hell, <laughs> how old do you think it is? I reckon it's probably maybe 100 years old or something. Yeah. It's doing well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's been damaged and, and yeah. repaired a few times too in its, in its life. But, yeah, it's, it's well made. It's just yeah. not my sort of thing, really. Yeah, <laughs> it's of its time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's one of those things in the garden as well that um, the funny thing there is a, a lot of the statues in the garden aren't really that great. There's, there's mm-hmm. not for me anyway, there's, uh, you know, some quite cheap sort of bronze statues that attract so many people to photograph you know see all these little cute little cheap statues that people want to photograph themselves with yeah 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 and there's a rodan statue down the back that's a proper uh, casting of a rodan um was it uh can't remember the name of the statue and no one knows it's there. It's hidden in amongst oh. an azalea bush, and it's it's, it's a, a it's real a, rodent. It's a real rodent. Wow! <laughs> wow! Maybe um, you can convince them to maybe move although, it to another part of the garden. something that's as valuable as that you might not want to bring to. Oh, yeah, we don't want to too close. It's a it's a not a full size. It's not the full size original. It's one. It's a it's, it's a, mini. a mini casting. So. Um, uh, it's uh, a monument to Balzac, I think, the, 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 what it's called. But it's a real Rodin. It's got his signature and it's wow. a proper bronze casting of it. And it's down the back in, hidden in an azalea bush and everyone's taking photos with these quite cheap bronze statues. Oh, well, there the you go. Everyone listening, there's a bit of uh, yeah. special intel for next time you visit Forest Glade. Julia in, Campbell, in Camberwell has rung in. I know I can cut back a butylon quite hard, but when mm. is the best time? It seems always to have flowers. Mm. Thanks for your show. I have, the, I have the same problem with mine. Yeah. I've got the red one. I, uh, I like I've, the a red, red and a yellow one do really well at home. The others seem a bit weak and, and don't grow very well. And the yellow one took quite a few years to get itself established and be as strong as the red one. Um, but I have the same thing where it's like that needs to be cut back and then five years later I still haven't cut it back because... It always seems to be in flower. So it's always in flower. In my opinion, you just have to cut them. Yeah. Because yeah. they get, they flower at the end of the, of, of the branches. Yes. Yeah. So it gets effectively very woody and leggy. Yeah. Sometimes in the depths of winter, mine gets some yellow leaves, and that's when I think, oh, okay, I'll prune it back. And it, it might still be flowering, but it's got yellow leaves. So I prune it back, and then I give it a feed, mm. and then. You know, doesn't matter if it's flowering or not. It will flower better the next season. And she's in Camberwell, so she's not going to get frost. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. the other thing I was going to say is you'd probably want to wait until the frosts are over. Because I, I had a tree daisy. I had a tree daisy that I killed by pruning it in mm. winter. Yeah. And the frost just took it out. And I don't get a lot of frost. It usually rolls off the hill for mm. me. Mm. But no, so Julia, we think you'd be quite safe doing it now. And I think it's worth pruning it quite hard. When I'm nervous about something, I sometimes just prune one half and watch, wait till it That's shoots That's exactly again. what I was going to mm. say too, is, is maybe take the most important half off and then see what happens. And once it's... Because, of course, once it's set a few new growth shoots, you can, you're can you safe then. It's, it's going to come back and you just take the rest off. But uh, yeah, if you open up, say, the north-facing side or something like that first and... As soon as you see buds coming from the old wood, then mm-hmm. you can take the rest off, yeah. 
because usually I don't prune to where I can't see growth. But I think with an abutilon, I think if you actually saw it off, it'll still come back. Mm. I've, the, the red one at home, I've cut off at ground level, I think, three times now. But the first time I did it, I was scared because mm. <laughs> I didn't want to lose it. And you've since done it several yeah, times. But, yes. but the other thing is if you let them get too big, they start breaking apart at the base as well. And, mm. and um, although when it, the red one did that, it uh, had enough a cambium layer left in the bark to still continue growing and then it just suck it from where it fell over. Mm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they're, they're pretty tough, I think. Mm. And, and the frost would be the thing I'd be more concerned with about, anyth- about anything, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes if you're lucky, there are little nodes and shoots that you can see deeper within the, the centre of the mm. plant that you can just cut back to. You look for water shoots. Yeah. Yeah, the water shoots are the... That's what you want to encourage anyway, the water shoots, so you've got that healthy mm. growth. Because um, my Montanoa, which is stunning, has j- it's still just finishing flowering. This is the Mexican tree daisy, Montanoa, if you want to look it up, M-O-N-T-A-N-A-O. And it's really beautiful, but I had two. And, the other, and one's in amongst all those dogwoods and everything, <laughs> too much. And the other one was out. And I pruned them both, but the one that was out just said nut. And I'm sure it was because it was just too cold. I shouldn't have pruned it so hard. There's certain Mm. things that you can't just prune back into hardwood as well, isn't there? Oh, you can. I prune them. I can prune them onto. I prune them onto to the ground. And I saw one in Olinda recently that had just been left go. Mm. We saw one recently. Um, Emma and I both went on a, a botanic gardens guides tour, and. It was absolutely beautiful, mm. and it was 20 foot by at least 20 foot wide. Yes, yes. And what I do is I prune it down to the ground, and it gets to 15 foot every year. Mm. And, and it was flowering prolifically, like it was... It was fabulous. It, was on yes. it did make me think I should put one in somewhere where I can just let it go mm. and never touch it and see what happens, because it was very... And it's they're a, not hard to propagate. Mm. It's always interesting with those things in your coppice, isn't it, where you, you sort of think... What happens I know, if I yeah, don't? Yeah, like blue stem. Uh, I've had blue stem willows at home for many years and, and had grown them in other people's gardens and always coppice them because you get the beautiful sort of blackish blue stems on them. And I thought, I wonder what they look like if you just sort of let them go. <laughs> so now I've got the one at home's quite a, a substantial tree now. And the um, colour of the bark? Yeah, it's it's still not big enough where you're losing a lot of the... Uh, you know the colour and the new growth because it, it'll it'll sort of persist for a few years. It's a willow. Yes, the Salix acuminata blue streak. So um, it's not a not a weed. No, this one isn't. I think the willows are like the oxalis, unfortunately, where you've got about five of them. They give them a terrible name, and mm. and, and then the you've got ones okay. from I think Spain or somewhere that grow to about. 20 centimetres in 400 years <laughs> and are endangered in their wild habitat and things like that. I think they're, um, I've never had, uh, well, it's, and we're, I'm not near any waterways or anything like that. Um, but the, And the same goes with the, the dogwoods as well, the red stem dogwoods. And mm. you sort of think, I wonder what that looks like. But that's one thing I did know what it looked like because uh, there was one growing in the old garden I grew up in that was never coppiced and it was quite... Uh, an ungainly, un, un, look like an unsprung mattress, this thing is. Yeah, so def, definitely coppice your red stem dogwoods. And the yellow stem. Yeah, and the yellow stem mm. ones. And, and 
Um, although I should try, I've got the coral stem dogwood at home, the sanguineus. Ooh, that sounds nice. And I should put one of those out and just let it go because I've got no idea what they look like mm. uh, if you just let them go. I'm but I'd imagine keen. they'd be the same. I'm very keen to plant some of those those uh, coral stemmed ones along my driveway. Yep. I think that would look really nice. I, <laughs> I remember seeing them in on the road planted um, in the middle of a roundabout going down to Brighton in, oh. in Britain in winter, mm. and it was just extraordinary to see these ste- so many of these mm. stems that work because yeah. things well, are very dull in Britain in the middle of... I mean, for us, the middle of winter is absolutely beautiful. Yes. All yeah. my camellias are coming out, my grevilleas mm. are coming out. There's all sorts of things happening it's in the garden. It's above zero, yeah. usually. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it doesn't snow. <laughs> well, in most twice places. in 16 years in my place. Oh, but wow. the, it's never sat. Mm. Well, the, the, the coral stem... So that's Cornus uh, sanguinea or sanguineus. I can never remember. I think it's sanguinea. Um, the beautiful thing about that is if, if you can walk around it, so a roundabout's the best use mm. for them because if you walk around them, they're actually different colours from different sides. Right. So the north side, or for us anyway in Britain, it would have been the south side, but uh, the side that hit the sun hits in winter will actually go in a, a more of an orange colour and the south-facing side that doesn't get direct sunlight's uh, coral yellow. So if you walk around it, the the whole oh, thing wow. actually changes colour as you walk around it. It gets it's more yellow if you look from the south. And, and what time do you prune that? Well, any of those stem coppicings, so the ones you're after, water shoots and nice stems. I reckon, obviously, there's no point pruning them in winter while you're enjoying the stems, um, but you don't want to let them put any energy into new growth. So it's trying to judge. Basically, you're looking out for new shoots. As soon as you see the, sh- the buds starting to swell, then you take it back to whatever you're, comf- whatever you're going to coppice it to that year. I've got an endemic plant from the Yarra Valley called Goodyear, and it's um, got the most beautiful lilac purpley stems. It's, it's in the pea family. Yeah, right. And it has a yellow flower, and it's just beautiful because the stems are so beautiful and yep. I'm, I'm just letting it go and I'm noticing it's beginning to send up more shoots so it's thickening up mm. it'd make a wonderful hedge I think I'm not sure which good year it is yeah. no doubt somebody will ring in and tell us <laughs> this is the 3CR Garden Show I'm Virginia and you're listening to Emma, Greg and I if you wish to talk to us our numbers are 94190155 or 94198377, and if you'd like to text us, 0488809855. Yes, so this Goodyear is just fabulous, mm. and, you know, being local to the area makes it even better. I mm. think uh, eucalyptus coppice really well, too, if you can sort of I'm get them nervous. in the right spot. Yeah, I, some of them don't like it the first time, mm. but once, they, once they've got their... their bud structure where you've cut them up and going they t- and and new growth shoots on gum trees are absolutely stunning i, I think that's what they often use them in britain for as yes. well they, they can't really grow them into trees it's a bit cold but if you chop them down to ground level and throw some insulation over them for the winter they can survive uh, you, you almost yeah. use them as a perennial yeah you yeah. see them in london as trees okay i've got a very good fr- friend frank and he's got one that's big but but if you can think of um, like some of the beautiful foliage on 
sapling gum trees, mm. that, that juvenile foliage. Because it's juvenile, foliage. yeah. It's um, so different to the uh, mature yeah, foliage. Yeah. And, and then you've got that times a thousand because a, a good once the tree's used to it and, and it's, it's got a healthy root system, you know, you, you coppice it down, it'll send up 400 shoots that get up to, you know, two, three, four metres tall in a season mm-hmm. with these beautiful big juvenile leaves on them and all sorts of, you know, frosty blues and, and reds and, and pink sort of colours in some, depending on what species you have. The perennial garden in the Botanic Gardens has got one. I think it's one of the snow gum type. Yeah, Peruvilentia. I think maybe? so. And it, mm. it is taken back every year. Yeah. I've got one in my garden called Moon Lagoon, so it's obviously... I was wandering past one day when they were pruning that one back at the Botanic Gardens and I was close to my wedding day and my mother-in-law was making um, confetti out of eucalyptus leaves with a hole punch and so I grabbed a bunch of it. They said, oh, it just goes in the composter or the wood chipper anyway. So I grabbed a bunch of it and so that ended up being a lot of wedding confetti for me. So <laughs> I thought that excellent. was pretty lucky. That's excellent. A nice little, nice little story about the garden. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I want to prune mine but I'm nervous because it's so beautiful. It's only a small eucalypt and I'm not convinced that it'll come back. I might lose it. When you say small, how small? A metre? been in a couple of years and I'd say it's shoulder height. Okay. And it's in a, quite a bushy shape. Yeah. I, I guess the thing is when. Yeah, so I, I was going to say with gums, I think you want to get them so they've got a decent trunk on them before you compost yeah. them. Or, or like you were saying before earlier, is don't go so hard the first time and, yes. and let it try and, try and encourage those new growth shoots down lower where you want to coppice it until you coppice it there. So the first year, just give it a haircut and I see how it responds to that. I wonder if you can ever just make some little notches with a budding knife and see if that would provoke some shoots, some growth, mm. you mm. know, just in the in the trunk or even add a little bit of hormone. Yeah. <laughs> just see what, tinker around a little bit. I well, don't know. It would be just dependent on the species of gum too. Obviously, you know, ones like... Um, Messmates, for instance, which can handle a bit of fire, uh, mm. have got you know epicormic growth on those gum trees that that, that come, are in, just comes back in, that are in high, highly flammable well, most, areas. So most mm. of them yeah. do come back, don't they? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah most of them. I, I, but not. So all. I'm not sure Regnans had coped too well with being coppice. Mm. <laughs> no, I think that one. But yeah, any any of the. Uh, but yeah, maybe maybe just start off a little bit lighter. So uh, another thing that coppices really well. I think of the of the berberus, which are one of the ones that I've bought in. Mm. Um, so one of the better coppicing ones is the uh, Thunbergia atropurpureum. So it's got beautiful, you know, almost black burgundy foliage, new growth in in spring, um, and it sort of goes to a, a darker pale, a, a darker burgundy green over over the middle of summer, and then it goes back to burgundies and hot oranges and yellows in autumn when it gets its autumn colour before it drops its leaves. But if you coppice these, again, just before they shoot in spring and they get those big water shoots on them, not only do you get healthier-looking leaves through the growing season, which look more attractive when it's growing, um, but the canes on them are actually a really nice uh, copper colour and you've got all the thorns on them too, like all all the berberuses do. Um, and they're actually structurally really nice if you if you coppice them every year. My garden at the back of my house on the view side 
I've got two garden beds and it's they really lack structure. And I was thinking of putting three um, Berberus helmet pillar mm. pillars in to just try and give it a bit of structure. It needs, you know. So well, the the helmet pillars, I think they're quite narrow. Yes, that's so what I wanted. And, the, and they okay, right? Yeah. So that, that's um, where. So I think they're a Thunbergi I two from memory. Um, the Atropurpureum, though, if you coppice those, they can get to. If you if you take them down to say half a metre at the end, end of winter, by the end of the season they're well over head height again. Um, All of them? Yeah, yeah. So they'll send out water shoots over a metre long over, over a growing season. Any Berberus? No, no, this is the Thunbergii. The Thunbergii. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so which Berberus will cope better with the heat? Because I put some of them in my top bed, which is um, close to pine trees, facing northwest, so it's the hardest place in my mm. garden, and they haven't done well up there. I, I, I've found them all pretty hardy at home, once they're established especially. Um, we have um, a phone call from England, so I think we might go to that immediately. <laughs> we don't want her yeah. to have to hold on, do we? No. This is Ellen ringing from England about a butylon. Hello, Ellen. Hello. Thank you for taking... Hi. Oh, this is where I, I hear myself talking, so I apologise. Um. I, I just had a question about what I could do to grow an albutylon here and keep it through the winter. Because does, do they go dormant a little bit? Um, the Proteaceae, I managed not to kill them over the winter. They're still growing slowly. The King Proteas and things from South Africa, they were in a sunny window and now are out in the greenhouse. But I've looked at the albutylon. I think they, they look lovely, I, but I didn't know if I could try to keep them in a pot and bring them in for the winter. What do you recommend? Yeah, the, the pot would work, I, I guess, t- so you can shift it round and keep it out of the cold. But, yeah, they certainly don't like too much sub, sub-zero or uh, Celsius um, temperatures. The, the frost and really cold weather will knock them about, so... Um, and the only other way would be to, if there's any way to insulate them in the ground, but you probably get permafrost <laughs> sometimes. Mm. So no, that, that... <laughs> we're not permafrost. We're not that bad. We're okay, that right. Bad. Um, so I'm I'm not London temperatures, um, but I'm I'm East Midlands, and we do we we usually suffer maybe one or two weeks where we're just at freezing. Yeah. So yeah. I have citrus in pots, and they stay in the, in a you know an unheated warmer room in the house. But will it, do, do they go a little bit dormant, or do they... I'm just worried about the light levels as well. Yeah, the, the, certainly at my place they don't really go dormant at all. Occasionally they'll, they'll yellow a few leaves in the, in the colder months, but, um, uh, yeah, dormancy is not really a thing that they do. And, the, and they almost always in flower, like we were saying earlier. Is you, you go to prune oh, them okay. and you go, oh, they've still got heaps of flowers on them. I don't want to cut them yet. Mm. I think also and the East Midlands is... Whereabouts in the East Midlands are you? Um, I'm about 30 minutes north of the Best Chateau Garden. Oh, yes. So dry. I don't know if that helps. Uh, yep. Yeah, yep. Dry, Colchester? Dry wind. Uh, we're in um, Northamptonshire, so just north of Cambridge as well, so we're kind of mm. right on that border. So you do actually have very, very cold winters. Mm. 
Uh, with global warming, because I've been here about 10 years, global warming, it's, it's better. I mean, less cold, <laughs> mm. but um, we don't we don't get to freezing very long. But when we do it, it you'll lose things if, if you haven't, if you've left them uncovered. Yeah. So something I would watch out for is the development of sooty mold over winter. Butylins can get okay. that quite, quite vigorously and it can cover their stems even so maybe that's something to watch out for but if you are moving it indoors or into a into a winter house or greenhouse over the winter it probably won't be an issue so do you get sooty mold on yours emma yeah yeah. see i don't but then i've i'm on the top of the hill and get wind whereas Mm. emma is down in the forest Mm. and it's quite cold where i am and i don't bring mine indoors but um, okay. It is it is rather sheltered. So I think what happens is um, it it develops the sooty mold in the winter as sort of a coping mechanism because it's not getting enough light. Okay. So, or not a coping okay. mechanism. I'll, I'll, it's a problem. I, yeah, plus poor thing. I, well, I'll, I'll try to. I'll give it a try. I'll put it in with the um, with the proteas and the and the citrus, and they can all fend for themselves through the winter. But thank you very much for taking my call. You guys stay safe with your with your lockdown. We love taking Thanks. a call from England, Ellen, so ring any time. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, thank you so much. All right, stay safe. Bye. Bye. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, not very often we get a call from England. No, no it's, a, it's a first for me. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I'm yes. rather impressed that someone from England's listening. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, that's the... Well, uh, it's the exactly the right time. Yeah. yeah. I do uh, ring at this hour of the morning. I wake up to, to ring people. Yeah. And the other thing is, too, because of the 3CR website, you can just... You don't need to tune it into 855 anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you can Digital. pretty much listen, listen to it anywhere in the world. Well, I always way. listen. When I'm in several, I don't have a radio anymore because... A lot of my radios don't pick up very well, mm. so I just go to the phone, yeah. which yeah, is great because I go outside. It's the same at home, yeah. Mm. So I, I um, spent many years listening to Melbourne Community Radio, all fuzzy, and um, yeah, it's uh, so that the, when you listen to stuff now, you can often get better internet reception than you can radio reception, so you just go to their website and live stream it. Mm. Mm. I'm just trying to remember if I grew on your butylon in London I think I did, but I, I'm having trouble remembering because it was a while now. Yeah. But I imagine they would grow there, although plenty of things in my garden wouldn't. A lot of the salvias won't grow. My, my dear friend Fiona lives in Dorset, and she can't grow a lot of the salvias that we grew in. I'd maybe ask the horticulturalists at Kew or at some of the National Trust properties because some of those properties, they... They have, you know, glass houses that they, or orangeries that they bring in there. One of the things, though, too, I mean, they they experience things like armillaria a lot more than we do, and they Mm. just assume that they're going to lose things and they propagate them and replace them. Yeah, they treat them as annuals, really. In a way that we just don't. Well, our butylin do propagate quite easily as Mm. well. Yes. It's about, about the same or nearly the same as a hydrangea without too much effort. Mm. Um, it's just getting them up. You know, it depends what you want out of it. If, if you're happy with a, a small, well-kept pot that you can shift around and, and it's got some, enough flowers on it to make it worthwhile mm. keeping. Um, but for me, yeah, the, the, the idea of having them at home is to have one that's taller than the, 
the eaves on the house and has a few hundred flowers on it at any one time during the year. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good specimen. Yeah, yeah, and the uh, the yellow one suckers a lot more, and and that's taking up a lot more space than it was originally intended. Um, so it went from a small bush to suckering and and covering quite a large area fairly quickly. I find the white one was the one that was biggest for me. Right. Um, I don't think I've tried the white one. Yes, it's nice white. Yeah. You know how mm. some... I mean, this time of year, I love white in my garden. I've got that white Mexican salvia mm. in various places, and it just looks fabulous. Mm. Like white is a strong colour at this time of year. Mm. So it's nice to have white in the garden now, and my white camellias are about to come out. And the, the white abutilin looks sort of like a boiled egg <laughs> with the <laughs> yellow stamens in the centre. Mm. I think, well... You might keep yeah. the... Um, the cabbage moths away too. Yeah. In that case. You'd hope so. Yeah. Gosh, if anything could keep the cabbage moths away, we'd plant tons of them. <laughs> yes. Well, I think um, covering things is the only way really to do it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, this is true. So the uh, another couple of berberis that I bought in, um, actually I'll do the, the one in the pot first, which... They're just um, divine, everyone. That's so listening. this is a little one I got... Uh, given uh, a few years ago from a friend, uh, Finn, from uh, Autumn Joy Nursery in Newbury near, near uh, Trentham. Um, it's uh, Berberus calianthus, and it's one of the evergreen species. But when you say evergreen with Berberus, that doesn't mean you don't get autumn colour. They always have foliage on them. And I was just walking around last night looking for a few things to bring down today, and this it's in a six-inch pot, and... It's quite a small plant, and I really should get it out in the ground, but it's got the, the, these... It, it, so the leaves individually are like holly leaves. Um, and as I say, they're a dark green, glossy evergreen, essentially. But at this time of the year, those evergreen berberis have the most stunning autumn colour on the inside. So the older leaves from the previous year's growth, or a couple, you know, they m- might be two years old, and it just drops a few of them. But before they drop, they go bright reds and hot oranges and yellows in some species as well. And some of them are almost like a chocolate brown, like a deep yeah, yeah. brown. Um, gorgeous. And, of course, you get flowers in late winter and uh, berries through the year too. I'm not sure what sort of berries um, this calianthus has. Um, but that leads to my uh, my favourite berberus, which is uh, berberus... Uh, I think it's Julian A now. It used to be Berberus replicata. And this thing does something all year round pretty much. It's probably at its worst at the moment. And um, it still as you can see from beautiful. The, well, as you can see from the specimen, uh, specimen <laughs> this gets really big. So the, I planted this one way too close to my back door where I uh, near, near the clothesline. Um, so I have to get in and, and prune it very heavily every few every few months so I can get out the back door to hang stuff on the clothesline. Um, so the the new growth is can be a coppery burgundy colour. It gets big water shoots on. So the the, the one at the ba- my back door is probably about uh, maybe getting up to four metres tall now. So it's a big, big for a Berberus. Four um, metres? Four metres, yeah. I think I've got that. I might have given you one at I'm some sure. point. <laughs> it yeah. definitely came from you. Yep. And I think... I've put it right really near the path. Yeah. And it's got all... How well will it move? Uh, how big is it? Um, waist high? 
Yeah, that that'd move fine. Yeah, yeah. So so mine's got trunks. Because I love it where it is. Mine, mine's got trunks on it that are inches thick. Oh no. And and it's you know a good four meters tall. And I've cut the top off it a number of times. Um, I'm and imagining that if it gets four meters, could you? Do you think you could form it into an archway or? Well, the the habit. No, it's it's. it's there's bush. certain problems. Okay. Certain problems with that. One of them being that the thorns on the bigger. Uh, shoots uh, well over an inch long. Oh wow! Okay. And they'll <laughs> puncture truck tires. They're like nails. They're, right. they're, if, if you're pruning it, you've got to carefully remove everything that you prune. Mm. Um, and you get good at it. As a, a lot of people, um, when I used to try and sell this at the markets, would go, "Oh, it's got thorns on it. I don't want it." Did they, they buy were roses? The same, yeah, they were the same people that have yeah. a rose garden. Roses tear your skin. These stab you. These they just in and out, <laughs> clean. You don't get welts and, and yeah. infections later on. It just it just stabs you and then it's out. Mm. <laughs> um, but they are massive thorns. They're, 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 um, which again I like. And it's another another good thing is if you want to create habitat for birds mm. that cats can't get into. This is the plant for you because yeah. there's no cats are getting in this. There's just no way they can do it. And that's a wonderful thing, especially if you live in a in a forested area where you're yeah. trying to create habitat for native wildlife. And, and it's got berries that the birds seem to be interested in mm. and flowers uh, that the honey eaters get really into in late winter when there's not a lot else about as well. Greg, mm. I've got it in up in that northwest garden of mine, so it's a hard spot. And, oh, and I was, that's what I was getting well. to, too, mm. is it's probably, you mentioned before about one that would grow in a harder spot. I think if you can get it established, the, the, the Julian A's are really hardy berberus as well. Mm. So to I'll run, have, to run through the seasons... Big, I have to move it. You'll have to move it, I reckon, yeah. To run through the seasons, the new growth is... Um, Two-tone, so some of the water shoots will be a beautiful sort of soft green, and then the water shoot beside it will be deep bur- coppery burgundy sort of colour. Um, the leaves are narrow, almost like a willow leaf, mm-hmm. but they're quite hard and glossy and have got sort of uh, holly pointy bits on, the, especially at the tips. And the leaf is quite a dark colour too. Yeah, so, so the general colour of the leaf once it's matured is, is a dark glossy green. Um, so in springtime, uh, well, late, late winter, you get these beautiful bright yellow flowers all over it. Then the seeds start to form in huge clusters all over the plant. So every, every older stem on the plant has so got really, seed pods on it. So really, I need to let it go. Yeah, don't, don't coppice this one as much. This mm. one's actually better if you let it go, I think. Mm. Okay. Um, and the, the clipping that we've got here in the studio, it's got the seeds set on it at the moment, and they're just beautiful. And they change colour as well. So yeah, you can see sort of a they're limey green with like a flush yeah. of pink. So and they end up black. Oh so wow! So they're a fully ripe one, they, and they go through reds and yellows to get to black sometimes as well. And do birds eat them? I think so. They they seem to. You don't see the amount of seed on it you would expect if they were just falling on the ground. There'd be piles of them underneath the tree, and there doesn't mm. seem to be. So, so some, something's chewing on them. So uh, so and the seeds aren't particularly setting seeds. No, no, it hasn't. It's never, never set a seedling. Mm. Um, although it's not too bad to grow from cuttings. Um, so yeah, you, you've got the flower, then you get the seeds start to form, and then in spring you've got these beautiful coloured new fresh water shoots. Mm. And then summertime you get the seeds go from little tiny green pips. Uh, they flush with red and yellow, and then they end up quite black. Uh, and then at this time of the year, again being one of those evergreen berberuses. 
if if you can give it a good haircut every few years, um, but what happens with the older leaves, like I was saying before, is they turn these intense yellows and fiery reds, and in, in a well-kept bush, it looks like there's a fire inside the bush from the inside because it's not the new leaves that are colouring up, it's the old leaves in the centre that, that colour up. Oh, it so sounds, it's sounds still exciting. dark green on the outside, but it's got this fiery light on the inside. Absolutely stunning bush. And this, this is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia, and you're listening to me, Greg, and Emma. I just wanted to tell you that the last weekend of this month, we will be doing our Radiothon to raise some money for the studio because, of course, we need to raise money from our audience to keep, the, keep this show on the road. So do listen the last Sunday of the month, and if you feel like donating before the end of the month, Feel free to ring the station during the week. And if you want to talk to us now, ring, ring in on 94190155 or 94198377 or the text number is 0488 And we have a text. Um, oh, we've got two texts, in fact. The first one is, hi, Superstar Garden Team. I wonder if that's us. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Since you're discussing coppicing, when is the best time to do it for the red and yellow dogwoods and how close to the ground? My climate is pleurisy plains, <laughs> i.e. kinton. <laughs> and that's from Margot. So Our Margot, I would say. Yeah, it sounds, yeah. sounds like Margot, yeah. Um, I, I reckon, the, the, like I was saying before, the whole point of coppicing them is to get the healthy water shoots so you can enjoy mm. them over winter. Yeah. So it's that point between uh, when there's no winter left mm. and before the thing starts to shoot off for the next season. And as far as how far back to cut them, you want you obviously want enough structure down there to get a decent amount of shoots off. Um, for, so for something like a red dogwood, maybe half a metre or so, and you would prune them each year leave a couple of nodes longer and then every five or ten years you might have to get in there and cut back a little right bit harder and remove some of those older We have to remember bits. that pleurisy plains, i.e. kinton mm. does get mean frosts and mm. quite late but mm. I mean as I said I saw them beautifully in Brighton and that's Co- cold Well Cornus albus siberica it's comes from, from a Siberia. very cold place yeah. <laughs> I don't that's think true. the frost is going to worry them so uh, and I think Cornus sanguinea is also, that's from Europe, in quite cold parts of Europe as well. So I think they're both really well suited to mm. super cold environments. So I don't think the, the new shoots shouldn't be worried with that, I don't think. Mm. And we have a phone call from Mount Waverley. It is Maria. Hello, Maria. Hello, good morning. Yeah, I, um, I have a peony. It is about at least 25 years old. And I get one flower one year, two flowers the next year. Can I prune it to make it bushier? Probably pruning's not the option here. It might, might be peonies are really heavy feeders. Yes. So yeah. blood and bone, and yeah. maybe a little lime as well. They don't mind. They like crushed lime. limestone and lots of blood and bone. Probably in the same quantities. Mm. <laughs> I remember yeah. um, Dennis Norgate. Uh, with, he, he had fields of tree paintings uh, in, in his last place before, before he passed away. And he would put 
per bush about four a four liter ice cream container of lime and blood and bone once or twice a year. Wow. Um, so when when would be the best time to do that? Oh, probably now, I think, yeah. for the blood and bone. Yeah. So it's sort of soaking into the ground by springtime when they're starting to shoot off. Yes, because yeah. yeah. they, they definitely are a plant that need feeding. Mm. And if yeah. you eat bananas, I'd throw your banana skins around them too. Yeah, so uh, the blood right. and bone's phosphates, which will make the, the roots nice and strong. And the other yeah. important one would be the, the potassium, which the bananas yeah. are really bananas good Bananas will provide yeah. potassium. Yeah. And they do it's definitely like lime. I not sure what your soil is like. I've got them growing in my soil, which is very acid, mm. and I tend yeah. to I tend to just crush up my eggshells and put them around them all the time. Uh, mm. As well, yeah. But so this one is about at least a metre tall, but it never gets any side shoots. Yeah. Do you, do you know what variety it is, or what no, colour it, it is? No, it is white. It's white with a deep purple centre. Oh, okay. It's beautiful. That it sounds, sounds like, wonderful. That sounds like. It is, yeah, but cells, it, I think that's really beautiful, and I can't remember the name of it. Um, yeah, it's just this bare stem, and then just one flower, one year, and two flowers the next year. So, so some of the variety, some of the old, older hybrids, the old garden hybrids that were bred in the 1800s, I think, um, which I think mm. were fruticosa hybrids, uh, were more bred for gardens. So they're beautiful shrubs as well as being lovely flowers. But yeah. I think a lot of the newer hybrid, if it is a hybrid, a lot of the newer hybrids are more, they're, they're those things that are bred for show, so they're bred for what the flower looks like. And she definitely and yeah. the, doesn't have and that. And the bushes don't look so good mm. sometimes, and they can be, like you're describing, just a bit leggy and don't have many shoots. Mm. But I, I, would, yeah. I would say encourage new growth through feeding rather than pruning because... Yeah. yeah, taking stuff off peony roses just seems <laughs> like it's the wrong... Nerve-wracking. Yeah, it's... No, yeah. Mm. I, Somebody... I, I, we, we'll yeah. put a note through to Stephen Maria and ask... He'll be yeah. here next week and ask him to also yeah, address Stephen the question. Yeah, Stephen would be better to ask, ask that to Okay, that would be good. Yes, thank you so much. Thank okay. you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you, Maria. Thanks. <laughs> and we have um, two texts now. Hi, Greg. Great to hear you. Could you please discuss the fungus season? and how it compares to previous years, and anything that you've particularly noticed. Love your work. Well, well, <laughs> it's not <thank> signed. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, it's been weird because, because we had such a wet summer, um, the end of summer was quite... Uh, there was quite a lot of fungi around towards the end of summer and the start of autumn, but as we started getting into later autumn, this is around Mount Macedon, of course, for me, um, the, the, the rain sort of just disappeared and it was quite a dry autumn and there wasn't actually a lot of stuff around considering that we had such a wet summer and I, I was quite excited to see all the fungi in autumn time and then it got to autumn and it dried out. And so it was a little bit disappointing in, in some ways, but there was still stuff around um, and unfortunately, I haven't spent as much time in the forest uh, this autumn just purely because my, my old dog, Misty's a little bit sick and getting a bit old and she can't do the long walks through forests at night time like I used to do. <laughs> um, and, so you, and you won't go without her? No, no, not, not, while, not while she's still around. So it's sort of... Um, some nights she's happy to sit in the car for a, for a few hours. Um, I'm, I'm more inclined to go out if it's raining and cold, and it hasn't been, yeah. Um, so, uh, 
yeah, I haven't been out as much this year, but the times I have been out with, with fungi tours and things like that, it is a little bit disappointing. I've still seen some really interesting stuff. I have um, to say, my garden has had more fungus out this year mm. than for years. Well, I don't like know what they the are. The garden at home Except has the had... little blue ones. I know what they are. The garden <laughs> at home has had a lot of fungus um, this year. Uh, probably stuff that I've introduced because I'm <laughs> looking out in the forest all the time. Um, but, yeah, so the, the, the fungi at home, those sort of grassland, they, they, they've responded well to the weather. Um, but the forest stuff, the, especially the wood rotters, all the stuff that grows in the old logs and things like that. Um, like the turkey tail. Yeah, well, they're, they're a little bit tougher, though, so, mm. so there's quite a few of those around. But there's some species where when it's raining a lot and the weather's right, you'll see them all through the logs, and this year there's not that many of them. Mm. And then other species that you don't see a lot of, are loving uh, uh, the there's, weather. There's actually quite the a wet. lot of them around this year mm. In, mm. in a few different spots, yeah. This is turning into a Greg fan show. Morning, <laughs> team. Virginia, I agree with fabulous Greg. Move the tree, oh, not the ixias. <laughs> he is correct about the difficulty of them and the fungal issue. Also, frost protection helps deter these issues, stressing them more. Give it a good feed of B&B and garden lime. Emma, get Ginny to take you down there when you when you can, because it's beautiful. Take you down here when you can. Oh. Great show, Jane Tonkin. Oh, isn't she a gem? Thank you, Jane. I will move the tree. I think you're right. It's I'm very lucky to have those. If you've got a good spot for it, mm. I'd, I'd keep oh, it. Oh, your intuition I'd... was spot on. <laughs> and also, she says add some lime. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's often a thing, especially when you're growing species plants, which I'd recommend. Um, rather, rather than hybridised stuff. Um, the one beautiful thing about researching uh, species plants is you can find out where they grow in the wild mm. and you've got a perfect um, sort of uh, directions about what they need yeah. for you to grow them in your, in your garden as well. Because, you know, they've, uh, if you can try and replicate what, what their natural growing conditions are like, that's... You know, that's a really good starting point on successfully growing them. Um, so, yeah, the, the obviously love, they come uh, from a, a lime limestone area in yeah. South Africa somewhere. And I love looking up. I mean, for me, that's what I do is I look up to see where they come from to mm. get some idea of what to do. That's mm. the most logical thing. So when things are very bred, it's hard to tell. And especially during lockdown, it's like going on a holiday Without going anywhere, because you, you learn something about the climate or geography, of a, sometimes of places you've never been, yeah. so it's, it's really fun. Quite often places you've never yeah. been. <laughs> like I haven't been to those high Andes, and I love looking mm. at some of the stuff that we grow from, from, the, um, from South America, mm. and a lot of the salvias come from South America. Yeah. A lot and, of and it's also interesting to see different parts of the world that have very similar climate to us. Yes. And even in places you don't expect it, like... Iran. The, like, well, and South America as well. There's, mm. um, you know, the, sometimes the, the conditions may vary a little bit, but they're ones that you can adjust really easily to. Like mm. a thing like a Bartlatina, which comes from the cloud forests of, of Mexico, I think, quite, quite high altitude. And is growing beautifully and in they, the botanic they, gardens. they do beautifully mm. here, as long as you give them a little bit of rain, because the one, th- even though... The temperatures throughout the year where they come from are very similar to what we have here. 
Um, the only the big difference is that they get a bit more moisture in summer when they, when because they could be closer to the equator, so they've got mm. their wet season in the in the hotter months instead of the colder months. Um, but they're super easy to grow here just by throwing a bit of water on them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, amazing. Emma, what is coppicing? Coppicing is generally taking a plant that's full size right back down very low and taking all of it back, not just a little bit. So um, you can go straight down to the origin of the stem. You know? as, as long as you leave some growth shoot, like some mm. nodes where they can, they can regrow yeah. from. Yeah. So you could call, you could say I'm pruning this tree when you're actually coppicing it. Well, and there's pollarding too, which is a little bit taller, I think. Yeah, I think that's a so it's like a mid <laughs> between between coppicing and a and a lighter prune, so like a midway. Yeah, so I think the the old beautiful plane trees in in like Paris and stuff, I think, are pollarded where they they'll leave the main trunk and a small branch structure, yeah. and just take it back to the the um, it almost looks like a Joshua tree. Yes. You know, that sort of look where you've got the main and they, trunk and a few branches. And they prune them every year yeah. to yeah. the same point, which yep. is often 15 foot up in the air. Mm. And and they sort of look like, if you've ever had uh, those grafted mop-top robinias, they yes, sort of look yeah. like the way that they look in the wintertime. Yeah. That's what you're going for when you prune it, to ultimately look a bit strange. But come spring, it's really worthwhile. Mm. I... I pollard my dogwoods. No, no, I don't. My um, cottonus. My cottonus. Yes, mm. every second year or I second love, or third year. I love I pruning cottonus. And mm. and the other thing is, when if you're coppicing or pollarding them, um, again because the main reason you're growing them, you, you often if you do that every year, you lose the flowers. So the smoke bush part of it goes because I think they flower. They tend to flower on second year growth. Mm. Um, That's why I do it every couple of years. Yeah, yes. but but I've just done it. The foliage on those is just so good that you can almost again maybe have one in the background that gets a bit taller and has the flowers on it, and I've then the ones one. at the front and you coppice or pollard. Yeah. So you get that the le- the size in the leaf from a uncoppiced uh, catenus compared to one that that's cut regularly can be twice as the the, mm. the ones on the coppice ones can be twice as big as the as mm. the straight ones, mm. and then you get better autumn colour and yeah, and stronger leaves and and they're quite upright and uh, yeah, nice attractive looking things. And then you just chop them down before they shoot. Yeah. Yes, I think and and I, as I said, I'm having a lot of fun. I've got an awful lot of um, mulching to do, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here actually. We've been pruning out. We get a lot of regnan saplings underneath the mountain ash that we have, um, and we have to. You know, some of them have been in for a few years, so having to chop them out and mulch them. Would you be able to take saplings out that are young and um, plant them? Yeah, definitely. I think these ones are, because this is our first year in the property, the previous owners thought to keep them, whereas we've had advice from arborists that it's better to thin the canopy a little bit. and so they've gotten a bit too big to transplant them. Um, so we just have to chop them out. Uh, one of them was about three metres. Okay. I've, uh, another garden I work at, we, we used, um, again, the, the, the forested part of the back of the property had grown too thick. So it was at a stage now where some of the saplings were out competing each other and dying out. Mm. But they were quite straight and tall. So some, you know, they had 
uh, up to 30 centimetre trunks yeah. down to uh, you know, ones that are just a few centimetres across. And what I did was made like um, uh, fences out of them. So I used yeah. some of the bigger ones to put uprights in and you put two posts at one end and then one offset in the middle. Oh, great and then idea. you cut all the other ones to the same length and you just slot them down between the posts. Yeah. So the, the one at the back holds the, them towards the front posts and you just build up these beautiful fences with all these saplings, dead saplings that I had to cut out. So that that's <laughs> a brilliant so idea. So that's a, another idea is you let them grow up till they're useful um, for you know maybe uh, some sort of structure in a veggie patch or mm. a, a, um, a fence to block out the neighbours or something like that. Yeah, what a um, brilliant idea. And yeah, that they come up really well. Just yeah. And if you didn't cut them out, your house would disappear. Eventually, yeah. We'd be <laughs> we'd be back under the forest. Yeah, consumed. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's absolutely essential. Uh, we have more for the Greg fan club. We love you, Greg. <laughs> also we love the underrepresented fungal kingdom being represented. Thank you. And then we Thank have you. another one. Yes, to the species type plants. Knowing where something grows in the wild makes gardening much easier. Mm. Great show, guys. Chloe. Now, Chloe, do you know my goodier? Because I don't know its second name and I would like to encourage people to grow it. So we're not getting many phone calls, but we That's are right. getting lots of texts. I've got more plants too. <laughs> Far yeah, I'm very excited about so, so that one's a, a Clematis nepalensis, oh. which it's... Again, it's a species one. So the, the hybrid clematises are, are really pretty and they do their thing in the garden. Mm. But the, some of the species clematis are just stunning. And again, with the species things, you, there tends to be less worries about, you know, fungal infections and pest sort I of things, problems a, a lot. I Not always, a, but a lot. I mm. have a lot of clematis in my garden and mm. that is the only one that I find turns up where it is not wanted. It does seed a little bit in the right conditions. It doesn't seed at home though. It sets, it sets a lot of seed, but it, I've oh. rarely seen seedlings off it. I've got it all through my veggie garden. But I know, and at uh, Stephen's nursery, I know he's got one on the front fence or he used to have one on his front fence that used to seed in the front bay of the nursery as well a little bit, which is probably where he got uh, he, he propagates his stock from maybe as well. Um, so the, the interesting thing about Clematis napolensis, it's mine's just starting to open its flowers now. Um, the flower, the outer bracts of the flowers are sort of a, a creamy, almost like the centre of a Granny Smith apple, sort of a, a creamy greeny white sort of outer bract. Um, the stamens are quite thick and long and deep royal purple sort of colour, maybe a little bit of burgundy in there, I guess. And the the female parts in the centre are, are like all sort of stuck together and like a lettuce green uh, a bit longer. So they're not a big block of colour like the big hybrids. They're very But they're very unusual prolific. And, and there's a lot of them. And it's not just the flowers too. So the, the flowers will... The flower from about now up until August or, or thereabouts, sort of towards the end of winter, um, and then the seed pods start to develop, and then the things covered in these beautiful little truffula tufts, like <laughs> for um, Dr. Zeus, uh, the seed pods on the on them is just covered in these beautiful little um, pom poms, uh, feathery pom poms, um, and again, even though it comes from probably quite a different climate to what we have here. Because it's summer dormant, it doesn't need 
a lot of water. So as long as you plant the actual base of the plant in the shade somewhere where it's not too harsh, um, and you can put it up a, a deciduous tree, and then when the tree's deciduous, this thing will start growing and do its thing over winter when the deciduous thing's deciduous, um, and then it goes dormant in summer. Um, and, and so do you chop it back in the summertime? Or I, do I don't. Yeah, okay. I, this one's... But I do. I don't do much mm. at my garden at all. It's it's turning very much into a wild space. Um, and and another reason... That, so And this is sort of competing with Ampelopsis and Wisteria and... Um, uh, pathanocissus, so it's it's quite yeah, tough and vigorous. That keeps it in check. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not as vigorous as those. But I've it, got it up some of my trees, and I do take it out because it becomes there's too much of it. Yeah, mm. yeah. And I am worried about it turning the up seeding, everywhere. In, in mm. the wrong climate, the, the seeding might be a, a bit of an issue. But um, I think I'm the wrong climate. <laughs> and there's there's also some really beautiful native species of clematis too. So yes. clematis and aristata is just a stunning little thing. And, and even if New you keep Zealand it, ones. If you keep it in its juvenile state, they look like uh, cyclamens. Yeah. <laughs> the leaves on them are beautiful variegated, they are. Uh, really stunning foliage on them. Yeah. And, Greg, we have Andrew from Montmorency, wanting to talk to us about mushrooms. Hello, Andrew. Oh, good morning. Um, sorry, girls. Uh, I'll go to quiz Greg while I've got a chance about um, some pine mushrooms. Yep. Fire away. I've got three, I've got three questions, Greg. Um, a, um, when they, you pick them and they turn, uh, have that green tinge come through, do I need to be worried about that? So the first thing I'll say is I don't actually eat that many mushrooms, so I'm probably not the yep. best person to talk to about edible mushrooms. Yep. Um, but in this case, I would say any mushroom that you're picking to eat, and you're definitely sure that that's what it is, um, the the thing you're looking out for is if it's old, if it's older or it's starting to decay in any way, the the chances that you'll get food poisoning not poisoning from toxins but actual like bacterial food poisoning type issues uh, gets increased so okay. so if you've got a mushroom that's not in good shape the chances that it might have some sort of bacterial stuff on there that'll make you sick uh, goes up so the, the fresher the better um, okay. and obviously that they, yep. they the saffron milk caps do stain that sort of coppery uh, copper sulfate sort of color um, yep. it's, not in, it's not an indication that they're off, though, I don't think. But um, as I say, anything you're going to eat, just because it's an edible species, might not mean it's in an edible condition. <laughs> so, okay. so try and get yeah, the healthier that, that ones, I reckon, sense. yeah. Uh, well, the, um, the next question I was going to ask, with mm. the saffron milk caps, um, are there many like species that uh, can fool you, or are they one that... A, because of where they grow, and B, because of uh, they're quite identifiable, they're, they're pretty kosher to grab. Yeah, it's probably, if you're going to start collecting your own mushrooms, saffron milk caps are probably the best ones to start with. Greg, yeah, what's the name of that book that recently came out? That, that, oh, so um, Alison Pulio's just put out a book on, I actually can't remember what the book's called, Wild Mushrooming or something like that, I think. And It'd it be easy enough to find on... Um, uh, Would you just repeat her name, please? Alison Pulio. Spell. Pulio. Uh, A-L-I-S-O-N. 
uh, I think it's P-O-U-L-I-O-T. Yes, I think that's right. And you'll find, or I found when I tried to buy the book recently, that it's out of, uh, it's out of print, but they are... It's, it's been... It's Pretty being well. reprinted It'll because be it's reprinted, been so yeah. popular. It's so and and the book itself. Uh, so Alison has a really good web- website that you c- that I think you'd find out any information you wanted to about the book. Um, okay. The best thing about this book is it doesn't try and cover every edible species. What it does is it picks out the ten most uh, commonly picked wild mushrooms for, for the edible species. And it goes through every single step that you need to be able to identify that species safely and what its lookalikes look like. Um, so like I was saying, with the saffron milk cap, the best is, is probably one of the better ones to learn with because there isn't a lot that looks a lot like it. And the ones that do look like it, which uh, ones are Paxillus, which is quite toxic and dangerous to eat, if you know a little bit, you know enough to tell the difference between those two. Um, so, yeah, a good thing if if you're learning what to pick um, is to also think about what looks like it that might be poisonous. That's probably actually more important to learn that, or is yeah. as important to learn as what you're actually picking to eat is what might look like it. So the, the book, uh, Alison's book's called Wild Mushrooming. Um, and it's a guide to foragers. And, and like I say, instead of covering uh, all, everything, it, cu- it, it goes to uh, about 10 different species and gives you everything you need to know how to safely identify those uh, for consumption. So it's, it's a really, really good book. And it will save you from getting poisoned. Yes. However, you might need to order it because, I, when I, as I said, I tried to buy a copy at the Botanic Gardens and they didn't have it. They said they were waiting for it to come in. Then I tried somewhere else and somewhere else and all of them were out, mm. which is wonderful. Yes, that and, a book and on mushrooms would almost guarantee that print. they would be reprinted yes. as well. So, yes. so it's being reprinted and we'll all must go out and buy it when it is to keep mm. it going. And ne- uh, next year, Alison said she'll come on the show for us when uh, she's excellent. in. When excellent. Excellent. That'd be great. Um, and the other thing too is uh, um, uh, are the Facebook groups. They're, they're really good, and and I, I wouldn't go to a, a Facebook group, especially with edible fungi, because a lot of them won't talk about edibility, which is really good in in some aspects. The ones that do talk about edibility, which uh, a good ones, Victorian mycography, uh, yeah, I think it's called, um, and. If you uh, if you were to post something on there and just take the first comment, that's that's not what what these book these Facebook groups are used for. But if you get in the comments and and see who replies to things regularly and people respect their opinions and they're sort of um, uh, well known people on those pages that answer a lot of questions. And so basically, you you scroll through the comments of a lot of different posts find out who knows what they're talking about in these groups and after a while you get to... They're good training grounds. Those Facebook groups are really good training grounds but don't just go in there and post one picture and then expect that the first answer is going to be right. You, you study more, them like more, you other do. Be yeah, more like careful. Yeah. Mm. And it's good as well if, if people are posting references to the information that they're mm. putting on the Facebook group. So a lot of the time they'll provide links to another website or um, some sort of botany yeah. reference that will really help 
and the cross the cross sources is the best way to go about it. Don't just rely on one person's opinion. Or mm. I mean, obviously, if you know Unless someone, it's who's, book. yeah, if there's one person you know that's really good at it, I would weigh their opinion a lot heavier. Did but, you uh, have another question? No, look, Andrew? that's just been some wonderful advice. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure listening to to that, and that will help me greatly. Thank no you. Fantastic. Thank you, Andrew. And next, we are going to Francis in Frankston. Hello, Francis. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I've got a weeping cherry that flowers in the kind of deep in the middle of winter, and it's really nice in the garden because there's nothing else happening except this thing is in full display. But do you remember um, Benedictine monks and they have kind of that bald spot on top of their head but then hair underneath? Yes. That's what my tree does. <laughs> um, it's, it doesn't flower, it doesn't grow leaves or anything in the top section, but then it right kind of as this hairy fringe underneath where it flowers. And I was wondering, is, can I prune it or does it need something? It sounds like the perfect spot to grow a climber. Like a little climber. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, yeah, maybe one of the smaller, smaller clematis or, or mm. um, in winter you could put a tropiolum up it, uh, one of the tuberous um, nasturtiums. They, mm. look, they look fantastic in deciduous weeping trees, although that would probably grow out to the ends as well. Um, but, yeah, I think pruning it's... I uh, think pruning a weeping cherry is really difficult. And you'd only do it if you really had to. So, so if it's flowering nicely on the outer perimeter and you're happy with the flowers off it, mm. um, maybe yeah, maybe look at using that space as a bit of a gift for it to grow something else up the up the uh, the inside. Maybe I've got quite a few weeping cherries, and one of them's too high for you, me to know if that's happening. But some of the smaller ones, if I think about it, they they are fairly sparse right in the middle mm. there. Mm. But somehow I ignore that, which might not be the right thing to do, but it's what I do yeah. too. I have a very large one growing over my back courtyard, and in order to walk beneath it, I give it a bowl haircut once a year uh, so that it doesn't get down mm. too low. Um, but it that doesn't really affect the flowering much, to be honest, so I'd say mine's a different variety. And I think if you... To prune it back up to that point, mm. um, yeah, I'm any, not, I just don't know what Any of happen. those stone fruit type trees, so, so the prunus being one of, them, one of them, if you cut them heavily at the wrong time of the year, you can cause some serious problems with uh, um, that gamosa type sort yeah. of bleeding sap if you do, heal. Yeah, if you do do it, make sure you've got very clean secateurs or pruning mm. tools and... And I think, too, the timing, so I think it's in autumn when the sap's running down the tree, I think it's the best time to heavily prune a cherry. Yeah. Um, but basically, so we yeah. don't like the idea of you doing it, Francis. Yeah, you use it as a climbing structure for something else. <laughs> yeah, I like that idea. Because, yeah, it does, when it flowers, it's really beautiful in the bits where the flowers do come. Yeah. And also, if you used it for a later flowering clematis, it would the flowers would come after the... Prunus has flowered, mm. which would also be quite nice to have mm. a second round of flowers of admittedly a completely different sort. Mm. Yeah, but it's certainly yeah. a, a structure just for something. Yeah, mate, just don't put, yeah. don't put a really big climber on it. No, mm. no, don't put I any pathanocissus or 
<laughs> yeah. All right, that sounds lovely. Thank okay, you. Frances, thank you very much. We've had several call, um, texts coming in saying that the goodier that I have is goodier lotifolia, L-O-T-I-F folia. And I have to say, people, I'm very thrilled with my goodier. So if you want something interesting that is native to our, this section of Victoria, try goodier lotifolia. And it's purpley, pale, violet almost stems I find absolutely beautiful. And can I also say that we are getting so many texts, I'm having great trouble keeping up to them. And the next one I'm going to read out, I'm very confused about. This is from Sue. I have a bush that has white, fluffy flowers like the cottonus, but white. The leaves are small grey-green. I picked it up at an open garden, and I don't know what the name is. Oh, I think I know the plant. Does it smell? Well, I can't. There's a, a mint, it's, it's got a minty smell, I think, if it's the one I'm thinking of. And She's I tentative about pruning it, it, but it is getting less leggy, and so who knows if it smells. What do you think it might be? Greg? Oh, I can't think of the name. It's something Pogon or Bistra Pogon or something like that. I've, I don't think I've looked at the name for years and years and years, but I I've got it. Um, Greg, could you put that on our Facebook page? I'll, I'll see if I can track the name down later and, and pop it up on there, yeah. Sue, we'll have a go, but it's a bit hard. If it, if it is what I think it is, you can prune them quite hard and they're, they're not so bad. But don't go off that because I don't know if that's exactly what you mean. Yes, and it's not going to be isopogon. No, not isopogon. No, it's, it's like a Canary Island smoke bush or oh, Canary, the Canary Island, Island bush smoke or something bush. like I that. I know the Canary yeah. Island smoke bush. It could be that. And it's ve- it's got a really strong odour to the leaf if you crush the leaf, a minty, spearminty sort of smell. And I think the common name is Canary Island smoke bush. And I think it's something in Pogon or. Do you know the Canary Island smoke bush? I'm Let not familiar it. with it's it, unfortunately. It's another one I know we do have in the gardens. It's a. a Definitely, Sue. It could be the Canary Island smoke bush. That would make sense. So I'm sure if you look that up, that will um, become obvious. Next, we're going to go to Robert. It's, sorry, just before you do, it's Abistropogon canariensis. Mm. So I nearly got Did I say? I might have even said you that. You said Bistropogon. <laughs> very good. So uh, that's, that's the Canary name. Island smoke bush. Maybe, yeah. Now we're going to Robert in Mitcham. Good morning all. Yes, you've been talking about all sorts of things that interest us this morning, but uh, you're talking about the, the fungus that grow. last few years we've had uh, quite uh, a number of uh, what I believe is earth star fungus coming up uh, around the place. And uh, last year we certainly had a pile of uh, also what I thought was a crucible fungus on the, on the compost heap. Oh, okay, yeah, there's some interesting little species that pop up in the in the wood chips, um, uh, all sorts of interesting little things, but the, the earth stars, which are geastrum, are just the most amazing little things. So most of the guild fungus sort of release their spores from the gills that float away on the wind where the earth stars um, hatch out of these little eggs and the spores are put into the atmosphere by something like a percussive means, something hitting the, the little bladder and forcing the spores through a little aperture in the in the bladder that squirts it up like a powder puff. Um, mm. Very interesting little little fungi, those, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're quite interesting. Uh, even where I walk, they're, they're, they're coming up. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, it's a good time of the year for them too, and, and, yeah, doing important work, especially in the wood chip mulch, breaking it down 
um, a lot of those yeah, the species you find in the wood chip marsh are breaking those <laughs> chips down into the soil, so they're making the soil for you. Well, that's probably aren't so much in uh, in wood chips. They're just in the stuff that I don't clear up from year after year. Right. <laughs> well, still doing more important work then, but <laughs> the wildlife like you not clearing everything yeah. up. The nature doesn't like a very tidy garden. Mm. Yes. <laughs> While I'm on the on, on the line though, uh, you've been talking this morning uh, cottonus. Yes, with our cottonus this, this year has had magnificent uh, bright yellow leaves on it and it has been looking wonderful but we've got a very miserable little uh, clematis I find the thing with the clematis is it really needs its roots in the shade so well they're in the shade alright but then I've sort of made sure it's had water and made sure it's had food but the poor little thing it, 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 it struggles and struggles and uh, my, my wife's very keen that, that it should not struggle well, no, I don't know what to do with it. I th- um, how long has it been in? It's been there for years. Ah, well, that's maybe it's too old. Maybe it's at the end of its because they don't they don't live forever. The clematis, well, no plant does, but clematis in particular tend to live around a decade, and then especially the deciduous varieties, mm. the hybridised ones. Yeah, the hybridised ones. Mm. And they can handle, obviously, if it's sick and small, there's probably not much to prune, but especially the hybridised ones, they really love a good haircut. They like a prune. Yeah. They're so so if, it's, if it's sickly and, and but it's quite long stems, um, maybe cut it to, you know, cut two, two metres or something. Mm. Yeah, or two-thirds of it off or something mm. like that. Cut it, cut it re- reduce the size of the bush so it's, it's growing Be- from buds closer to the ground. It yes, might and the other thing with bit. the clematis is they do break very easily mm. so that mm. if you've let it get very long, you can have a broken bit which is weakening the, that part of the plant that you don't even notice. Mm. I prune nearly all... I think I prune all of mine. Yeah, I'm just thinking if there's any... I, I don't know there of are, any that don't like There are different times of pruning for yes, them, yeah. obviously, mm. because you wouldn't want to prune... Well, you wouldn't... You wouldn't want to prune Napolensis now. No, quite. Because <laughs> it's flowering, but... But if you look it up, it'll tell you the different pruning times. But also, if it's struggling, I'd just prune it and feed it mm-hmm. and make sure that it's got either good mulch or got some stone mulch or whatever to just keep that soil really cool. Mm. Most of those things... Uh, it's only a very small plant, but... Uh, uh, most of those things I've tried to do, but uh, perhaps like me, it's just getting old. Yes, it could be that, Robert. I'm, I'm, sometimes you do just have to give up on these things. There's another really good uh, clematis nursery, which I can never remember the name of. Is it, um, is it Andamira Homestead? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're so terribly expensive. Yeah, but it's, yeah. you know, they're clematis. <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're labour-intensive plants they to are, grow yeah. because they... They grow them in, you know, hot houses or polytunnels, um, and they move them in and out, and they they prune them a lot. Yeah, so they're, they're a I lot can of work understand and why they propagation and and yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you're probably getting what you pay for too. They're, they're pretty good quality stuff, but, but their website might be really helpful too yeah. with pruning and trying to spruce your, because you know, like. Um, Post Office Farm Nursery with the Hellebores have really mm. good advice on on their website on, on how to grow the plants. Yeah, check out their website. So have a look at uh, the what was the nursery? Alameda. A-L- Alameda. Alameda. Yeah, that's right. A L A M E I D A. 
we think. Homestead, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm sure they'd have good cultural notes on the on the website. On yeah, the or you could even, um, I mean, they are a wholesale nursery, um, but you could email them and ask them a question. I'm sure they would be. And I know Tesla have a quite a lot of. Um, That's true. Have clematis for sale. They always have. Clematis are for sale, so you might want to have a look at the and Stephen, of course, the Tesla website mm. and Stephen Ryan at Dixon. Mm. Mm. There you go. My wife says the clematis is uh, blue and it's 45 years old. 45. Well, it's doing that is, well. <laughs> that's wonderful. That is a really good thing. All to things hear. considered, and it's only two feet high and it's poor little things struggling. Well, if you can get some advice from the experts at Alameda or Stephen Ryan, then I'm sure you could... Or Tesla. Or Tesla. I'm sure you could bring it back. And if there you, you can, go. Well, you thank you very much for another, another great right, show. Have a go at another one. Righto. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> yes, it's difficult, isn't it? And we now have Jill from East Brighton. Hi, Jill. Hello, Virginia. Terrific show. Thank you. Um, I um, I was just reading about the girl who said her um, sweeping cherry was bald on top. Um, my experience has been I have a magnificent one, and for years it was a fabulous, and then the possums got onto the top of it. Ah. And, I, and bit off every bud before it could sprout, and now the poor, almost down to about sort of... Oh, 30 centimetres from the ground, I get this little fringe of leaves and flowers. Uh, I mean, mine is much worse afflicted than hers. receding hell. Look, I was going to say, you know, it really reminds me of those sad guys who are bald on top but insist on growing their hair long in a sort of ponytail and a fringe. If you can do a comb (laughs) over with a cherry tree. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could. wish I could. I'd be desperate enough. I'm going to have to take it out. I think um, I've, I've tried netting it and, you know, that looks dreadful too, like Ina Sharples from, from have, have uh, you tried, have you? This might be a case where pruning might actually be a better option. Where Well, I think, I think they're going to just take every bit of new growth of new that they growth, can reach. Yeah. Um, I'm crossed with my staffies who should, should have kept the possums away but seem to be far too fond of being warm indoors and, and at night. And how are the possums getting in the tree? Can they jump from a... Uh, Yes, they can, uh, from a beautiful um, um, magnolia that I inherited from my mum, which I'm loath to prune, and I'm thinking I'm just going to have to take it out. It was glorious for years, but uh, sadly I just think, no, the possums have won that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have to say that is rather sad, Jill, but, you know, Mm. the possums do have some rights, of course. Yeah, we are. I just have to live with now. (laughs) (laughs) What was that, yes. Greg? Oh, the, the, the possums at home have pretty much got free range. Um, I don't get any fruit off any of my fruit trees anymore. It's just all... all mm. I've, I've got yeah, about five, five brush tails and about uh, five or six uh, ringtail possums. And, um, yeah, they can have it. They're, they're quite, uh, I quite would, good. I would say that at some ag stores you can buy a really good chilli spray... Um, it's a it's a high strength chili spray that you can spray on your plants, and it actually does work for possums. And it's quite rain resistant because it's a wax rather than a a soluble, a fully soluble uh, chili component. Um, well, look, that's good to know. Um, 
I don't know that about for, for, for this cherry oh, because yes, they've done it's... it for so many years. I think that it's no longer got any buds in the yeah. coming. You know, every, every bud that that has, um, you know, over about a four or five year period yeah. uh, has been gnawed uh, off. They've, they've even attacked the bark in and places. And it's, it's especially hard with taller trees. And like you say, they've been it's really been attacked. So. Yes, but I might keep that in mind for other plants that get attacked. Uh, and it's it just, you don't know the name, do you, Emma? Um, oh, I should know just, the just, name. Just while, you, while you're looking, I'll pop the, it on the, the... the plant that we were talking about earlier, the I, I think we've just seen a picture of it sent in uh, for Sue on the SMS line, and I'm oh. pretty sure it looks like the Bistropogon canariensis. Not 100% sure, but from the photos, it looked very similar to the to the, to the same plant. Thanks very much, Jill. Good to speak to yes, you. Yes, thanks for your, yeah, thanks for your show. It's wonderful. Yes, I think it does definitely look like the Canary mm. Island. Oh, and Jill, if we find the name of that possum spray, we'll put it on the Facebook page because that could be very, very, very useful. Well, I think we're going to have to go in just a minute, everybody. So can I say to everyone, remember, the end of this month is our Radiothon. And we are very keen for people to try and donate to keep this station going. So if you fancy donating this week, next week, or the week after, or if you could donate on Radiothon Day, we'll have lots of gifts that day as well. We are very keen for you all to help us volunteers keep this place and keep this show on the road. And it does seem that people have been happy. I'm sorry we haven't got to all the texts we'd want to get to, but... Um, that is actually impossible. And Greg, I've enjoyed the Berberus because I now know I have to move my Berberus, which is um, a very important point. Mm. As I say, you use it as a, a, bird, a bird safe haven for, from cats. It's <laughs> it's it's very good. I I think that's a, I think that's very important that we actually provide good habitat. Mm. When I moved into my place, there were no small birds, mm. and now I have now you've heaps. Got them. Yeah, yeah. And I'm very proud of that. And I've got the name of the chili spray for you. It's called Organica Ganix-Bio Chili Barrier. Chili Pepper Crop Spray. And you can buy that from more agricultural stores. So you now, wouldn't find that necessarily in your plant nursery. Now somebody has just texted in saying, Fab show, but please don't use the chili spray as it's cruel. Try other methods. So that makes it a bit difficult. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> yes. However, I think we're going to have to um, leave people to work that one out for themselves and see you all next week when Stephen will be here. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.